About seven or eight years ago, my wife was hit by a painful chronic illness and uh, just turned her whole life around. And what I began to realize as the years went on is the Lord was really testing me and, and really changing me as well. Uh, during that time, uh, the Lord taught me patience, love, and compassion, and how to serve and not expect to be served. And um, I didn't realize that God was just equipping me to be a better shepherd to, to the flock. And in so many ways, my wife's trial became my trial and, and her equipping became my equipping. And so um, may Christ just use me in, in uh, how he's equipped me to shepherd his sheep for the gospel. Well, in this last session together, I would like to direct your attention to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. I shall read only verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Open the eyes of our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, we beg of you, not only that we may understand this passage aright, but so apply it to our lives, to our churches, to our homes, that we will grasp something of the cosmic dimension of the struggle in which we are involved, whether we like it or not, and thereby learn to use the weapons with which you have blessed us Forbid that we should ever think that Christian living is a sort of desultory, placid, flaccid, weak-kneed thing. Help us to see that we are to be stirred up as men in a conflict. That there is a struggle, a war to be won, which must not be misconceived, but which demands our best. So work in us, we pray, what is pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now let's be quite frank. There are elements in this passage that will strike many of us as quaint at best, if not, dare I say it, slightly ridiculous. The image of Christian soldiers dressed in tin pot armor 
strikes no resident chord of strength, of preparedness, vitality, firmness for people who are used to thinking about war in the 21st century. Give me three or four Marines with M4s and maybe a 50 caliber machine gun and that'll be the end of an entire Roman battalion. Throw in a couple of tanks and maybe a harpoon missile or two and you can kiss your Roman legions goodbye. Just fly over them with a B-52 dropping a load. And so we look at these sorts of... um, you know, your, your buckler and your, your sword. And, and it, it doesn't resonate with us unless, unless you have historians' sensibilities and th- th- this is the way you think of heroics. You're, you're an antiquarian in your interests. Besides, all this military talk, as quaint as it is and as old-fashioned as it is, isn't it a wee bit jingoistic? I mean, I thought Jesus was all about making peace. So before expounding the text, I want to make three preliminary remarks to point us in the direction of what we should properly expect to learn from this passage. Number one, the Old Testament frequently portrays God as a warrior and his servants as his troops in need of his strength. It is a common image. For example, this is one of many passages. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. With a shout he will raise the battle cry over his enemies. Habakkuk 3, 8 and 9. Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow and called for many arrows. Psalm 35, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with you. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and buckler. Arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. And likewise, God's servants are sometimes presented as his troops in need of strength on the day of battle. This is very, very common. And this passage draws from those sorts of passages in the Old Testament. They're common in the Old Testament partly because sometimes God's covenant people really do have to defend themselves militarily. Just ask King David. But at the same time, these things are applied in the New Testament to the dimensions of our warfare, we'll see, that are more transcendent yet. Second, don't let the old-fashioned armor throw you. That is part of the metaphorical language of the time. Fine. As such, it is to be understood and carefully unpacked. But we cannot replace this list with a certain contemporary equivalent, the bazooka of righteousness, the electronic shield of faith, the rapier missile of the spirit, the tank treads of the gospel of peace. It's not going to fly, you know? It just sounds corny beyond belief. Not only would it be unbearably corny, but there are two further reasons why we cannot make such leaps. First, as we'll see in a few moments, these pieces of personal armor derive part of their metaphorical power from the part of the body they cover. We'll see that in due course. And you can't talk about rapier missiles quite that way. Moreover, most of these pieces of armor actually have Old Testament backgrounds. And really, the Old Testament is being quoted, bringing it into the new. For example, here's Isaiah 11, 4 and 5, regarding the Messiah who brings in the consummated kingdom. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. And truth, the sash around his waist. Isaiah 59. Oh God, put on righteousness as, God put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim... His salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns, and so forth. So part of our job in understanding this passage is to remember some of the Old Testament passages that are presupposed. But there's a third reason. It's vital to see that our passage, Ephesians 6, 10 to 30, is part of a longer argument. 
Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, by and large, is a theological argument. By and large, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are the practical outworkings. But the practical outworkings in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are divided into two pairs. You might want to mark up your Bible this way. First of all, in 4, 1 to 16, the focus is on life in the church, what God has given to the church. And then from 4.17 to 5.14, it's living the Christian life outside the church, the life of God in the new humanity, in this new society. And then back to the in crowd, 5.15 to 6.9, corporate worship and household living in the new community. That was part of what we were looking at this morning. But now again, facing outward again from 6.10 to 20, Christian living in warfare in the face of cosmic struggles and, and, and evil. In other words, there is a swing back and forth in these chapters between what we should be doing amongst the people of God and what we've got to do as we face outward. Then what we need to do in the corporate people of God and what we need to do when we face, out, face outward, you see? So this passage is part of the facing outward section of these chapters. So here is, quite frankly, a call to battle, a call for preparedness, a call to stand firm. And if the metaphors sound initially a bit old-fashioned, nevertheless, the message itself is perennially urgent. The reason why it's urgent is because the Christian way does involve struggle. It really is important to see that. You see, sometimes when we've presented the gospel, we've presented it as that which brings peace and contentment and new insight and, and happy living and joy in Jesus, and all of which things do come along in some fashion or another. But we rarely say to people, get converted, then you'll find out what struggling is really all about. But nevertheless, that's the way it works. And, and, and the Bible is full of, of texts that, that talk about fighting against evil, taking on the devil himself, being aware of cosmic struggles beyond us in our little world here. We get into a church fight about some incidental little thing and it's all about personalities and reading this person's motives and all of that and fail to see that behind this there can be massive debates over presupposed truth and massive debates over what the devil himself is doing. The devil sometimes attacks us with, with, with violent persecution and, 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 uh, and, and military coercion and so on. Ask Christians in parts of the world that are full of violence, but sometimes the devil comes to us with deception, deceiving if we're possible the very elect. He's not going to come to a whole lot of Christians in Hawaii and say, go on, here's a great big wallop of sin. Absorb it. It's fun. That's not the way he's going to come. He's going to come to us instead and say, you know, the gospel's all right. It's a bit narrow, but But there are other things that will help you too. This course on leadership will really, really turn you around. It will make all the difference in your church if you just adopt this course in leadership. And it might be a good course, but it might just be taking on the philosophical structures of the world and the business empire without understanding anything about what Jesus says about leadership. And it might be taking you away from leadership that is shaped by the cross to leadership that is full of one-upmanship and power and, and, and manipulation. Do, 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 do you see? But because you've been sold a bill of goods, you've got the gospel, now you need something else to take you the next step. And somehow the gospel itself gets diluted because you've just got snookered. You've just got snookered. So we need to understand the nature of the warfare that we're engaged in, even when it comes to wrestling with our own sins and our own temptations, when it comes to providing leadership in the local church and rearing our own family. Listen, if you've got a batch of teenagers, you know that there's a war going on. And it's not, it's not, just, it's not just between the generations. It's, it's, it's the pulls and tugs of a culture, what they're watching on TV and, and how many hours your son is spending it in computer games. And is that wise or not? Do I lower the boom or do I not? What they're reading, what, what they're being taught sometimes at school. There is a massive conceptual, ideological, moral, spiritual struggle for the souls of our children and for our souls too. How do we think about these things? Or is it, is it just washing over us so that we don't realize that Christian living involves discernment, struggle, fighting, 
opposition. What does it mean? And in the midst of all of that, still to promote the gospel. So how does Paul here then encourage us as we look outward? How does he want us to be equipped? Three things. Number one, know your enemy for the war you are in is vast and subtle. Know your your enemy for the war you are in is vast and subtle. Chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The source of the strength we need is the Lord himself. Be strong in the Lord. How then are we to be strong in the Lord? The answer is 11a. Put on the full armor of God, which then gets unpacked in verses 14 and following. But before we're told what that armor is and what we do with it, then there is further explanation about why we need it. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That means against ordinary human beings, and that's all there is to it. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. In other words, our fight is against the devil himself, against countless legions of demonic forces. Of course, the devil may work through human agencies. Back in chapter 2 of this letter, verses 1 and 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's one of the ways of referring to the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So we don't see him flying around, but we see certainly the spirits of those who are disobedient all around us. And sometimes we see them in our own heart. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We, we have to realize that the struggle we're in on this earth as Christians is part of a bigger cosmic struggle in which angelic forces have rebelled against God under Satan himself and part of the struggle is that bigger one. We're part of that. Satan in the scripture is at this juncture a defeated foe. But although he's a defeated foe, he's got a lot of life left. This is dramatically put in symbol-laden terms in Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, Satan has been defeated by Christ. But then we're told that because he's been defeated and cast out of heaven, he is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Those of you who are history buffs, remember World War II. By 1944, the Russians were pushing in from the east pretty powerfully. The Western allies had cleaned out North Africa and had landed in Sicily in the boot of Italy and were beginning to march up there. Then in June the 6th, 1944, the Western allies landed on the beaches of Normandie. And in three days, they dumped 1.3 million men and tons and tons and tons of materiel on the beaches. And anybody with half a brain in his head could see that the war was over. In terms of... uh, Steel output, men, equipment, energy sources, oil. The war was over. So what did Hitler do? Did he say, oops, sorry, I quit? By that point, it was even pretty obvious that sooner or later Japan was going to go under too. So did they say, okay, I quit? Well, in Europe, that's not what happened. Rather... Hitler was filled with fury because he knew his time was short and eventually there was a breakout again and they tried to get all the way to the coast and there was a huge fight in the Argonne because of the determination still to fight to the very, very bitter end. Now, you have to think of the devil in those terms. The devil is defeated in principle. He was defeated on the cross. The devil can't come to us and say, Don Carson, you can't possibly go to heaven. You're a rotten sinner. My answer is not going to be, oh, I'm not all that bad. You know, I do some nice things. My answer is going to be, Christ died for me. Your accusations don't mean a blessed thing. Get out of my life. 
Did, did you see? He, he's a defeated foe. As the, the accuser of the brethren, he's lost his power. He can't turn to God and say, God, you can't let that wretched sinner Don Carson in there. And God says, oh, yes, I can. I've already paid for his, his, his sin. Do, do, do you see, Satan and all of his arguments and all of his, 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 his appeal to God that we be destroyed, it's, 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 it's all lost. He, he, he knows he's defeated. But the book of Revelation says that's why he's filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. And then it says in that book how Christians defeat Satan. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That is... They recognize that at the end of the day, they can defeat Satan only by the cross, only by Jesus' death, only by what the cross achieved. That's how you defeat Satan. And second, you defeat him by the word of your testimony. That doesn't mean you give your testimony a lot. It means by bearing testimony to Jesus, by preaching the gospel. How do you defeat Satan? By evangelizing. How, how else are you going to defeat Satan in this world? Send in the Marines? At the end of the day, you defeat Satan in this world by preaching the gospel. That's, that's, that's what you do. And thirdly, they do not love their lives so much as to flinch from death. That is, you're prepared to be martyred because you live in the light of eternity. You, you take up your cross daily in principle, and if that actually means real martyrdom, that's okay too, because, because you live in the light of eternity. And that's how you defeat the devil. So this is a different set of metaphors here, but it's the same huge struggle. You recognize that, that Satan is still alive and active. He may be defeated in principle, but nevertheless, nevertheless, we're on the winning side. After World War II, there was another image that became very popular owing to a Swiss thinker by the name of Oskar Kuhlmann. In Europe, in the war in Europe, the landing on the beaches of Normandie was called D-Day. The actual victory in Europe was called V-E-Day, Victory in Europe Day. And Oskar Kuhlmann, after the war, said that in some ways, the whole time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is analogous, is analogous to the time between D-Day and V-E-Day. You see, the crucial battles have been fought. And, and Christ has won. The war is over in principle. Our D-Day is behind us. It took place on a little hill outside Jerusalem. We know who's going to win. We're on the winning side. There's no doubt about that. But some of the bloodiest skirmishing and fighting goes on all the way to VE Day. And the consummation brings in the final end when there will be justice and peace and resurrection existence and the home of righteousness. And so we still long for that. Some of the fighting goes on, but we do not fight not knowing how it's going to turn out or thinking that we might be on the losing side. We, we know how it's going to turn out. And our king, our warrior, has in fact already triumphed over the devil. Now that's part of the imagery that is presupposed here. Spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. This is not a separate classification of evil spirits. Paul's purpose is to show the, va the variety and comprehensiveness of the powers arrayed against us. In the heavenly realms, that is in conflict with God himself. But we must see that our ultimate struggle then is not against human beings. So we're playing power politics and moving political pieces around and playing personal one-upmanship in the corridors of power in our ecclesiastical denominations. No, 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 it's not that. We're fighting against evil itself, against rebellion against God, against the darkness in our own hearts. And this terrible, terrible evil manifests itself in our own personal sins, as in Auschwitz. It manifests itself in massive hatred and war, and it manifests itself in arrogance and hedonism. It manifests itself in Christians being butchered in Nigeria today, and in Iran today, and it manifests itself also in Christians being deceived being snookered by foolish ideologies because they're not paying enough attention to the Bible. So know your enemy, for the war you are in is vast and subtle. 
we are not to think that this whole battle depends on us. Far from it. We are involved in one in which Christ has already won and our job now is to stand and withstand. Did you notice that language? Verse 13, Therefore put on the whole full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything still to stand. In some ways it's a defensive war because the crucial battle has already been fought. It's been won by Christ. And now we're fighting off the devil's, as it were, final throes of fury and we stand and withstand with the weapons now that are about to be outlined. So, first of all, know your enemy, for the war you are in is vast and subtle. Second, know your equipment. For the weapons you use are astonishing and effective. Verses 14 to 17. So, having said stand and withstand, then verse 14 begins again, stand firm then. And then using Roman armor as imagery. What do we learn from this? Stand firm first with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, at the literal level, Romans, Roman soldiers had these belts that they used to pull up their skirts so that when they were actually in battle, their legs were free to run. Their legs were often covered with some sort of protection, but then they could run and fight and so on. Otherwise, they were let down so that they were kept warmer in chilly climes and that sort of thing. So the... the, the the belt had the effect of making us ready for rapid movement, ready for anything. That's, that's the idea. Now, at the metaphorical level, King Messiah, we're told, in chapter 11 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, is wearing the belt of truth or faithfulness. It's the same word in the original. Utter reliability. Do you see how important that is? It means not only integrity, we tell the truth, we speak the truth, we're reliable people. But it also means we proclaim the truth, the truth of God. We bear witness to the truth. Do you have any idea how difficult that can be? One of the most interesting passages in the Bible in this regard comes from John chapter 8, where Jesus says to his opponents, John eight forty five, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Isn't that stunning? That's not a concessive. It's not, although I tell you the truth, you do not believe. That would be bad enough. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. There will be some people in any society and massive movements in some societies where it is the truth itself that most offends because I tell you the truth, Jesus says, you do not believe. So if you talk today about the exclusiveness of Jesus, you cannot be saved apart from him. That is so intrinsically unpopular that your articulation of it means that some people are going to turn you off right away. It's the truth itself that guarantees unbelief. So what are you going to do? Tell untruth? That's what some people want to do, you know. They say, our society can't believe that anymore, so we have to say something different. But in which case, we're no longer taking our cues from the Bible anymore. Do, do, do you see? We're not saying, this is the truth of God. We're, we're trying to reshape the package so that it will be popular with whatever group we're speaking to. And if this group likes this, then we'll give them this. And if this group likes that, then we'll give them that. Do you see? But no, 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 no. We're ready for anything because we are wearing the buckled belt of truth. Now, there may be some things that we can learn about how to get that across. I have a, a friend, a former student, a Jewish fellow, actually, who became a Christian, became a, a, a graduate of Trinity and worked in university campuses. His name is Randy Newman. And some years ago, he wrote a little book called Questioning Evangelism. Now, he's not questioning evangelism. He's using questions in evangelism. He calls it questioning evangelism. And he points out how often Jesus, when somebody asks him a question, answers with his own question. And then he studies all the passages in the Gospels where Jesus, Jesus answers a question with his own question, and then he draws some lessons, what we can learn from this when people ask us questions. For example, somebody says, come on, you don't really believe that 
anybody who doesn't really trust Jesus is going to go to hell, do you? I mean, that's pretty narrow-minded. You don't really believe that, do you? So what do you say? Well, you could try and give an answer, but it's the truth, again, that's going to guarantee they don't believe. You, you, you could start saying, well, let me paint a big picture here. Let me begin with God and His holiness, and, 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 and let, let me start there. You, you've lost them right there already, haven't you? But what you might say is, well, do you think that nobody should go to hell? Now you've asked, asked a question to his question. He's asked a question, and you've asked your question. Do you think that nobody should go to hell? And do you know what he will almost certainly answer? Well, I suppose uh, yeah, it's just, some, some people should go there. Hitler maybe, Pol Pot, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose so. And then you respond, so what are the criteria then for who should go to hell? And now suddenly you've got a conversation going as opposed to merely dumping the truth on them in such a way that their backs are necessarily defensive and dismissive because sometimes it is the truth itself that offends. Because I tell you the truth, you will not believe. But what do you do? You remind yourself that you, in your integrity and in your witness, speak the truth. There is nothing else to speak. Now, there may be better and worse ways of speaking the truth. You may do so with some questioning evangelism. You may do so with some humility and, 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 and friendship and, and, and patience, line upon line. But nevertheless, if you are going to fight error and the devil's own lies, what you must do is learn the truth and articulate it. So if you are interested in growing at all in Christian witness, if you're interested in doing Christian witness, let me mention two books to you. They're both simple, they're both short. One is by Mac Stiles, S-T-I-L-E-S, called Marks of the Messenger. It's only about 120 pages, but I don't know any better book for encouraging people to do evangelism. Most books on evangelism just make you feel guilty. More stuff that you don't know how to do, more stuff that's discouraging, more courses, more techniques. That book makes you want to learn how to witness. Mac Stiles, Marks of the Messenger. And then Randy Newman, questioning evangelism, to give you some ways to respond to some of these things by learning from Jesus how sometimes to answer tough questions with your own tough questions. But all of this is part of the responsibility of being a well-equipped soldier for Jesus Christ, equipped with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. Again, the language is drawn from the Old Testament. And sometimes righteousness means righteous conduct, integrity. It protects, as it were, our vital organs. In that way, you think of a man like Joseph when he's tempted in Genesis 39 by Potiphar's wife. And, and day after day, she's on at him to sleep with her. And, and, and he, he says, how can I do this evil in God's sight? He, he, he calls it sin. He doesn't call it a peccadillo. He's a man of righteousness. He's a man of integrity. He doesn't make excuses for himself. Do, 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 do you see? Moreover, he, he's earned trust. My master has put this entire household under my care. And, 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 and therefore, how could I betray that trust by sleeping with you? You see, here is a man who is steeped in righteousness and integrity. He loves righteousness and integrity. He's not thinking what he can get away with. He loves righteousness and integrity. Now, I know that ultimately what we need is the righteousness of Christ. That's already spoken of earlier in the book. So there's a sense in, what we, in which we need the righteousness of Christ reckoned to us because of Christ's cross work on our behalf. I know that ultimately what commends us to God is not how righteous we have been, but, but how righteous Christ has been as his righteousness is reckoned to us. But once we've become Christians, our hearts are so turned around that... We, we do want to be right. God knows we sin often enough. God, God knows we slip and we falter in all kinds of ways. But don't we want to be people of integrity? And you have to fight for that, to preserve your integrity when the boss is asking you to cheat on the accounts. When you're a university student and you're really tempted to cheat in the thousand different ways you can do so now in the digital world. When you're tempted before... April 15 to cheat on your income tax, just a bit, but a few hundred bucks here and a few hundred bucks there, you know, can add up over the years, can't it? 
Or to cheat on your spouse by what you're watching on your computer screen? No, 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 no. You cover your vital organs with the breastplate of righteousness. There is a concern for holy living in your life that shapes everything. And you fight for that. And when it slips a bit, you get down on your knees and you ask for forgiveness and you go back to Christ. You, you, you understand that at the end of the day, only Christ's righteousness is sufficient. You ask for forgiveness and ask for strength to be protected again, to be strong, wearing righteousness. What other, what other defense can you possibly have? And then now, your feet fitted with a gospel of peace. There's a bit of an irony here, isn't there? You're wearing weapons for war. This is, this is warfare stuff so that you can proclaim peace, fitted for the gospel of peace. Peace is actually a big theme in Ephesians. Let me just list a few passages. One, two. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2.14, for he himself, Christ ourself, himself is our peace who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. No, 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 he has made one humanity out of two groups, Jews and Gentiles. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to those who were near, and through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit and many other passages. Peace is a big theme. And so there is a sense again in which the way we advance the cause of Christ and defend the truth is by proclaiming the gospel of peace. That is, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the cross, the gospel of how men and women are reconciled to God. How does the church grow? By the proclamation of the truth, which is the gospel of peace. Your feet announce good news. God is accepting guilty, rebellious sinners. And you learn to share that with your friends. Men and women get converted. And as they get converted, the kingdom grows. And with it, the number of people who are passionate for righteousness. Do you see? Your feet, as you go out here and there, shod with the gospel of peace, we learn to become effective evangelists. Then, verse 16, we take up the shield of faith. In the literal Roman world, this was a shield about four feet by two and a half feet. It was a full body shield that they carried on their left arm. It was made of wood. And at one time, they had often been attacked with arrows, with flaming pitch on the end that would actually burn up the wood. So what the Romans started to do was to cover their wooden shields with thick, thick, thick animal skins, which before they went into battle, they doused in water. They soaked in water. So when the enemies then sent their flaming arrows with pitch on the end, they'd hit the wooden shields, but all the soaked water on, in the skin would, would actually douse the flame. Now that's the image that is, that is being used here. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So the devil comes to us with flaming arrows. For a start, he might want to remind us of all of our failures. All the times we have not been consistent. Times when we've blown up at our spouses. Times when we've been singularly stupid. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night in that sort of halfway period between wake and sleep and you remember some horrible time when you you really did say something really daft or you denied the Savior? Somebody offered you an opportunity to say something about your faith and you just shut up, clammed up, you didn't want to say anything and then you remember what Jesus says, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father and you wake up in the middle of the night and you squirm and you squirm and you say, how on earth do I act so badly? Again, you've just been hit by one of the flaming arrows of the evil one. And the only thing that's going to spare you is the shield of faith. You go back and you trust Christ. At the end of the day, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You go back to the cross again and again and hold up the sheep, the shield of faith against all the the flaming arrows of the evil one who's still trying to destroy us and take us down.
Faith, too, is a huge theme in this book. Let me just mention two or three passages. 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 12, In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Do you see that? Through him, through faith in him we may approach God. Chapter 4, verse 5. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all. One faith, one baptism. Or again, 4.13. We reach out until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So here then we take on the shield of faith. Number five, we take on the helmet of salvation. Of course, the head directs the rest of our body to do things. So to protect the head is to protect everything. The ancient Roman helmet was made of bronze and included cheek protectors and this sort of thing. But this is the helmet of salvation. Salvation is absolutely foundational. This is not armor that you, you, you begin with piecemeal. Oh, I'll have a bit of faith, but I won't bother with a helmet of salvation. It, it, it's, it's the whole armor of the entire Roman soldier. And part of that is you protect that which governs the whole, the head, with salvation itself. You begin with men and women who are regenerate, and only they can take on the devil and all of his wiles. I don't know you, most of you. But there may be some of you here who really aren't converted. You've never trusted Christ. You may be churchy, but if you think you are going to change the order of your life by trying harder and being a slightly better dad and this sort of thing, without actually putting on the helmet of salvation, you will just be endlessly frustrated endlessly frustrated for what you must have is salvation which includes new birth forgiveness of sins having a right standing before God having the promises of God eternal life right now and hope therefore toward the future when we will have resurrection existence the helmet of salvation which protects and orders all of our life and then finally Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only offensive weapon in the list. Everything else is defensive. The only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. That's what soldiers used, swords or javelins. And it is identified here as the Word of God. The free hand was for that. The other hand was for the shield. Now the free hand now is for the Word of God. It's an offensive weapon. It's called the sword of the Spirit. This does not mean the sword given by the Spirit. Rather, it is the Spirit who makes the sword effective. The sword in the context is the Word of God, we're told. But it is the Spirit who makes the Word of God effective. There are so many people who want to build their churches by having the right program or the right gimmick or the right personality and God knows that God can use all kinds of different personalities but at the end of the day it is the word of God empowered by the spirit that actually transforms one of the reasons why we find ourselves to be at times ineffective in fighting the devil in our own lives or in our churches is because we have not taken up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God when I first began to teach at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, there was an old man on the faculty long since gone to his reward. And he had, <clears throat> he had been around since the year dot. But as a result, he had all kinds of one-liners. And he was as well known for his one-liners as his teaching of preaching. One of his best-known one-liners was, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. You're not what you do and what you say simply because we can pretend in what we do and what we say. 
But God knows the heart. Out of the heart come adulteries and sins and jealousies and malice and so on. What does Paul say to the Romans? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because what you think, you are. Which means that unless you take pains to fill your mind with the word of God, to fill your mind with good things, to fill your mind with God's truth, then your mind will be filled with other things. There was a time when many, many Christians got up in the morning and the first thing they did was to read their Bibles. And there are still some Christians who do that. But there are more Christians today, I suspect, who get up in the morning and the first thing they do is switch on their emails or Facebook. And they may get to their Bibles later. So what goes into your mind? It's not that emails are bad, but it's like computers, garbage in, garbage out. What goes into your mind? You will not drift towards sanctified thinking. You will grow in sanctified thinking and in your ability to handle the word of God and use the word of God by reading the word of God. By reading the word of God carefully, frequently, memorizing some of it, getting some help to understand it. Talk to a pastor who knows what level you're at as to what book might help you to read the word of God thoughtfully and carefully. Read with somebody else. There's a little book written by a friend of mine called David Helm. The book is simply called One to One, which encourages older Christians to take younger Christians or non-Christians and read the Bible together one to one because it is the word of God that is the sword of the spirit that has the ability to transform and to to cut back all of the attacks of the evil one to forge away with gospel clarity it is the word of God that transforms and and heals and cuts and quickens it is the word of God that brings conviction of sin it is the word of God that brings the good news of relief in Christ Jesus so take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God So know your equipment, for the weapons you use are astonishing and effective. Last, know your limitations, for the help you need demands vigilant prayer. Verses 18 and following. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. You see, you don't want to start treating these Equipment pieces as being something given to you as a chunk of something, a chunk of equipment that is apart from your life of trust, apart from your praying, apart from your disciplined reliance upon God. So he can use all these metaphors to get across what the shield of faith looks like and what the sword of the Spirit is. But at the end of the day, he wants to make sure that you do not think that this is a pile of equipment that you can use and then you're okay. At the end of the day, you're not okay. You're not strong enough. You need the grace and strength of God. So you must learn to pray. Above all, he says, keep praying. I'm sure that in this august assembly, there are some of you who are really strong prayer warriors. And there are probably some who pray once in a while, in church maybe. And there are probably still others who pray in the hope that they'll win the lottery. That's about it. And probably some who haven't actually bowed your head and self-consciously prayed one word after another, or maybe on your knees, seeking God's face and asking God's forgiveness, seeking God's help and protection on your family. You're doing it all yourself. You maybe even be trying hard, but praying? And asking God for help? Oh yes, the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it adds, for it is God working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Which means you must be seeking God. What does the text say? Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. 
And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That is, not just for you, but for the Christians you know. For the Christians in your church, for the Christians in your family. And pray not least for Christian leaders. Paul dares say, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. You ought to be praying for preachers and pastors and evangelists and Bible teachers, not only that you will be effective in your sphere, but pray that they will be bold and righteous and careful and faithful. All of this, as Paul cast the matter, is for the advance of the gospel, that I may make known the mystery of the gospel, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So know your limitations, for the help you need demands vigilant prayer. It demands the work of God in our lives, which he does effectively in answer to prayer. We recall the words of James, you have not because you ask not. Forbid that that should ever be so of any of us. But rather know your limitations and turn to God readily, quickly, again and again. For the help you need demands vigilant prayer. Let us pray one more time together. In truth, Lord God, these are simple lessons. They are basic lessons, but we confess with shame how quickly, how easily we ignore them or overlook them or forget them. We beg of you, Heavenly Father, that as a result of these two days, this day and a half together, many will go from this place committing themselves to Bible reading that they may take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the Lord to integrity and righteousness, to exercising faith in Christ's crosswork, the shield of faith, to diligent, fervent prayer, whether it be for five minutes or five hours, nevertheless a regularity to it that recognizes we cannot do these things on our own and unless you help us, we are undone. Will you not have mercy on us, Lord God? And raise up from this crowd of men many, many who will proclaim the gospel with new zeal, finding their way to be more bold, praying for others that they may be bolder still, seeing the advance of the gospel and faithful witness. Oh, Lord God, will you not do these things within us for the glory of Christ Jesus, for the good of his blood-bought people? Have mercy upon us, we beg of you. In Jesus' name, amen.